0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Robert Pekin grew up on a dairy farm in Western Victoria. His family had a proud name there in farming and in footy. Robert wanted to see the world, though, and at 16, he left to join the Navy. Eventually, Rob came back to work on the family farm, but he wanted to do things very differently to how his father and his grandfather had always done things – This caused a major rift in the family, and after losing the farm, it nearly cost Robert his life. But Robert never let go of his vision of what a farm could be. He now runs a thriving social enterprise in Brisbane called Food Connect, which brings farmers and city customers together. Hi, Rob. Hello, Sarah. When you were a little kid growing up, what did the family farm look like to you? What stands out in your mind?
0: Well, it's the the sort of the all the farmers who lived we lived on Larpent Road um, in Western Victoria, and uh, it was what stood out for me was the camaraderie between all of the dairy farmers who lived down Larpent Road. When we moved from walkthrough dairies to herringbone dairies, they all helped each other build these new dairies over a period of a couple of years. They helped each other harvest and cart the hay. Um, and
1: what's yeah, the landscape just, uh, look like? Oh,
0: so it's it's treeless or sort of treeless, hilly, volcanic plains in in a way. So it's um, you know very dry in the summertime. The average rainfall is twenty three inches in the old school. So you know um, what's that? Nearly seven hundred mil per year. It's Black clay down in the swampy areas, but red, verging on chocolate soils up to the the top, and then rocky hillscapes. You know, um,
1: and big yeah. skies.
0: Big skies, big skies. Actually, one year I actually could see the aurora uh, down across uh, in the into the south. I thought it was, you know, someone had a great big party, you know, somewhere <laughs> down in Otway, but it was it was. No, that was what it was. Our farm in particular was two hills, one 40,000 years old, of volcanoes, ex-volcanoes, and the other one was 1. 1.2 million years old. So not many hills in the area. Um, so our, our farm being, part of our farm being on top of the hill, you had great views and eagles, you know, there was an eagle's nest up there and yeah, it was quite... Quite, you know, wonderful to grow up on.
1: What was your favourite place to go, or where was your favourite place to go on the farm?
0: There was two old quarries up on the top of the hill. I mean, old little quarries where bluestone was was um, mined from, and and uh, they were my places where I used to go to, to seek solace because I was the oldest of nine. So there was of a, nine. Yeah, so there was a there was a bit of you know it was a bit crowded down down around the house and the dairy.
1: How long had your family been farming in that part of Victoria?
0: So um since the 18, 1880s, My grand great grandfather, Sandy Pekin, bought the farm, yeah. So so I was fourth generation.
1: Did you all have jobs, the nine of you growing up? Did oh you have absolutely. To pitch
0: in? Oh yeah, if you I mean Effectively, a a Catholic dairy farming family, all the kids are slave labour, really. You've you've got no choice in that, otherwise you don't get fed.
1: As the eldest, what were your, what were your jobs? Um,
0: it was varied. Obviously, there was, you know, as the kids grew up, there was a lot of getting the kids off to school and and obviously babysitting while mum and dad milked and and did all those uh, regular things, as well as, you know, getting the firewood, maintaining the veggie garden, feeding the chooks, getting the carbs in, Washing the yard down both day and night. Did bit, you
1: start milking as a kid?
0: Oh, yeah. We are always milking cows. We always rostered on to milk the cows um, various nights and then on the weekends. Um, you know, so what
1: time out. did that mean, getting up?
0: Um... Generally around six-ish, uh, you know, depending on the year. In harvest season, which is summertime, you'd get up a little bit earlier to get the milking out of the way because you had a big day of uh, mowing and raking and baling hay and carting hay. Uh, so they were bigger days, but you had more daytime to do it in.
1: Did um, you like it, that that time milking, or um, was it just a chore like uh, any other?
0: It, some of the seasons I really loved. Like, I did, I did love the harvest season. Um, I thought that was... That was uh, a particularly enjoyable part of the year, you know, raking hay, sowing as well. Sowing, we had pea, dad grew peas during this, you know, had one pea paddock. Him and his uncle had a pea paddock. So anything to do with tractors was always pretty exciting. <laughs> you,
1: how um, old were you when you got to feeding, drive the
0: tractor? Oh, I think I was five years old when I was taught <laughs> to drive the tractor. Yeah, uh, we all learned to drive the tractors pretty pretty young. Actually, what dad would do was just sit you in the seat, you'd grab hold of the Um, steering wheel and he would put it in gear and get it going at a certain you know speed and then he would jump off the tractor and jump on the trailer and then feed the hay while you you know as a five year old just kept going and then he'd say turn you know and you'd do these zigzags up and down the paddock but sometimes dad would be busy throwing hay off this wasn't me but some of my younger brothers, and they would just go straight ahead and just drive straight over the top of a fence. And then you'd hear about it. You could hear you could hear the. As
1: long as they didn't drive straight over your dad or no, any other sibling.
0: I mean, Sarah, to be honest, like why someone wasn't killed is beyond me. You know, it really is. There was some, you know, big accidents, but it's, um, it's the part of the farming life. You know, it's, it's hard and tough and, and you worked a lot and you, um, you, you just dealt with it and moved on.
1: How important was Aussie rules football to the and family. It was massive. You
0: know, it was you know the footy, uh, football was was big in our district as it was throughout the whole of Victoria. Actually, when I joined the navy and moved to New South Wales, and I was watching um, rugby on the TV, and I said, "Can we turn? You know, why What's are we this? watching this? What's what are, this are we nonsense? watching this for?" <laughs> and they said, "It's you know um, the local state of origin." And I said, "What well, here in Australia?" <laughs> <laughs> Rugby's played here in Australia. I couldn't believe. I had no. That's how. That's how fanatical we were about Aussie rules. We had no idea any other sport was played.
1: And so, what did that look like by a week? How regularly? Oh, were
0: you? Uh, footy training. You know, once or twice a week. Obviously, as we you got older, once or twice a week. Always had a football. Always kicking the football uh, between the house and the dairy. Um, so dad could find us really easily. Um, and as soon as we'd finish a chore, we'd be back kicking the football um, to each other as brothers, the neighbours. They would be all up at our place because uh, there was plenty of us kids and, you know, it would be on for young and old. And then obviously Saturdays, religiously, you went to the footy and you stayed at the footy all day up until milking time and you come home and milk the cows.
1: And did that travel around the district where you played or was there one local um, field?
0: No, um, the Colican District Football League was, well, like a sub-subdivision and then there was a the Hamden District Football League and then that was the feeder into the AFL. So there was a lot of clubs in our area, yeah. And
1: did you have aspirations for... Oh,
0: absolutely. What, what you were know? your dreams? Friday night, play to play, you know, um, in the in the big time. We all had that dream. I mean, mum was absolutely mad Richmond supporter. Um, every Saturday night we'd watch the replays of the AFL and uh, that was the only night where we just ate hot dogs. Like, it was just hot dogs in buns. That was so mum could... Cause mum, Focus. Yep. Yeah, didn't want anything to take that time away from. That was pretty much... You know, apart from Sherlock Holmes, that was the only thing Mum <laughs> <I> watched.
1: <laughs> and your brother ended up making that happen.
0: Tim did. Yeah, Tim was the next one um, after me. He uh, he he was very smart. He learnt very early on that if you um, made a fool of yourself doing farm chores, you could get out of a lot of farm chores. Uh-huh. So he would, um, when we were getting the calves up, you know, to the cows with the calves, uh, brand new, to put into the dairy. We used to separate the cows with the calves. If the cow chased the calf. Tim would just step aside and let the cow run away and dad would say, That's it, I'm not using you, you anymore. You go and play for so Tim, yeah. So Tim, bless his little soul, he he um he got a lot more time than the rest of us to do things
1: that This uh, isn't just a bit of older brother speaking, <laughs> is it, Robert? Possibly <laughs> It sounds like it was a a loving, busy world. Was it a bit of a closed world too?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, it's a heavily sectarian town, the Protestants and the Catholics and there weren't many other to my knowledge, you know, no other religions existed. And, uh, you know, to the point where the football club, we could see their lights, you know, uh, uh, training at night time. But maybe, the Protestants lights. The Protestants lights, yeah. Irurulipi really Football Club was literally four, four miles away, you know, and they were trained over there. It was that, you know, so it was very closeted, you know, very narrow, um, um, but obviously enjoyable because we all were the same and and we had great mates and we had a lot of fun together. But um, it was a very, very closed um, world, as I found out later on.
1: Well, what made you then decide to leave that at 16 to join the Navy?
0: Um, My Uncle Noel, bless him, he, at about the age of 13 or 14, I can't remember when, I was sitting in a room that I'd never sat in before in my life, but the room was very familiar to me because we used to walk around it at school at the Trinity College. Catholic boys school at that point. Now it's co-ed, but back then it was just boys. And I was sitting down, I got sat down by a priest and two of the Catholic brothers to talk about, you know, the future. And I'd never sat in a lounge chair with these guys. You know, know, the curtains were drawn and uh, very awkward, very uncomfortable because we had no idea of what, We were going to be asked as the questions, but the questions ranged from, you know, what do you think about girls and these sort of leading questions and then eventually at the end of it, oh, you know, your chosen path is is obviously to be a priest because you have no intention. And of course, they were the ones that told us never to think about those things and never to touch those parts of your body and to never have those sort of thoughts. So it was quite a...
1: So they were trying to suggest that you had a vocation. Had a vocation. And did that... Ring true And I
0: followed that Yes, I believe that I come out of that meeting And I believed that And went to camps And in a way Was being groomed But not in an unpleasant way Like I was never Sexually molested Or anything like that In my whole time But I got to the age of 16 And uh, my Uncle Noel Noticed that uh, and, and I was telling everyone Yep, yeah, I'm going to go off To the um, You know, to be a Christian brother What did your mum and dad Think mom about that? Mum and dad that. would love that Mum in particular Loved that idea The older son Going off to become
1: Professional football player <laughs> Or Catholic priest I'm happy with both She thinks <laughs> (laughs)
0: Either will do. (laughs) So Noel took me on a trip to Melbourne to buy some stuff, you know, to bring back for the store. And um, we just had a wide-ranging conversation where he asked me a lot of questions about what does a priest or a Catholic brother do. And then on the way back to Colac, he said, "Do you think you're equipped to do all those sort of things?" And and I resolved, or at the end, I come to the conclusion that I might, I might need to go and see the world. And he agreed. You know, yes. Why don't you go and see the world? And Basically, the next week, he is, you know, the Navy, Army, Air Force and the police recruiting teams in in Colac. And I went along. And um, after a quick meeting with uh, my best mate at school, and he, after listening to what I wanted to do and what I thought I wanted to do, he said, the Navy's for you. So um, I basically, within three or four weeks, joined the Navy.
1: That must Um, have been such a contrast. Oh. Oh,
0: Absolutely, I had no idea it, it, to me as a sixteen year old boy I was just i wanted to get out of school I was doing my hSC and uh, absolutely was not liking it at all and Noel sort of made me curious about the rest of the world so i was um i, I was I had no idea what I was in for, but I was, I, was, I was up to whatever lay ahead. And what was
1: your job in the Navy?
0: I'm um, an aircraft maintenance engineer. So I joined, because I had a love of aircraft, and I wanted to be multi-skilled. I like, um, I'm not very good at any singular task. I like to have my hand in a few things, and in the Navy, they, they multi-train you. So airframes, engines, hydraulics, airframes, you get trained in all that. A little bit of electronics, a little bit of things like that.
1: And how long did you end up staying in um, the 11 Navy? 11 years and
0: 14 days. Yeah, so I joined, um I signed on for six years, which is you, you have to sign on for a minimum of six years. And I got to the end of the six years, and um, that meant I had to sign on for another length of training plus four years. So that took me beyond the ten years.
1: And when you looked back across the, that more than ten years in the navy, what were what bits were really good about it for you? What were your highlights? Oh, it was
0: eye opening. You know, particularly the first two or three months, I was exposed to things that I never thought existed you know it was uh it was an eye-opening time you know uh, men from Boys,
1: actual Protestants, you would have met.
0: Well, all types. You know, it was it was it was uh, people who from all different suburbs, rough suburbs, um, people who didn't believe in God. It was you know Scottish. It was there was all sorts of nationalities, Polish people. There was all sorts of nationalities as well as a real diverse mix of personalities. You know, some who were ready for a fight as soon as you looked at them, and others that were just. You know, for a 16-year-old who had no real education in the, in, the, in the wonders of the world or women, this was...
1: Um, had the kind of discipline and regimentation of dairy farming almost prepared you for that yeah, kind of life? Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah, the discipline was... Oh, I slipped into the discipline. I had no troubles at all being, you know, get up at 5 o'clock and do a mud, <laughs> you know, mud run and then... It was very, very disciplined. Like, that first three months recruit training was extraordinarily tough. Um, and quite a few didn't make it. But there was 107 of us who joined together.
1: And are you still in touch with any um, of them? A few of them,
0: actually. I just had a reunion with them, a couple of them the other day, and it brought back a lot of memories.
1: By the the early 1990s, you'd met your first wife, Trish, and yes. were living and working up near her family in New what brought you back to your family farm Mum, we Victoria? were,
0: she was nursing and I was running my own marine engineering business up there. I had just a little boat repair business um, on engines and um, I'd sort of I sold that and was in a bit of an in between space. And mum rang me one day just to say that their farm manager or the main person who helped them on the farm, who lived on the farm in the other house, was moving on and um, they were now looking at putting on a share farmer because they were getting a bit old to, to run the farm and, and have employees. Uh, that that evening I said to Trish, I said, um, I don't know what their share farming thing is, but, you know, um, something twigged in me. So that night I got out a piece of paper and I drew the farm as I remembered it and we drew a vision of what, well, I probably mainly me, I drew a vision of what, I thought that farm could look like this is sight unseen for a long, long time.
1: And what what did that and
0: uh, well, look it was like. it was about people. It was about having more houses, like a community on there. And I'm not a um, not at all. I hadn't read anything about eco-villages, or these things weren't even a figment of my imagination. But I, I basically drew on this 310 acre farm, lots of activity, lots of different enterprises happening, you know, on the on the place. And uh, Trish said, "Well, let's find out about this share farming," and rang Mum and Dad the next day, and they took us through the whole, you know, how a share share farm works. Um, and so what is it? What's the main principle? The main thing that? is um, share farming, you uh, you get 30% of the profits, um, but you have to, you have to expend 30% of the expenses and uh, over time you get one third of all the calves so there's sort of like it's like a progression to 50% share ownership and then full ownership of the farm so it's like a pathway to owning your own farm
1: and is that a common way that farms are down? a common process down.
0: down in Western Victoria and in New Zealand they, they, they had for years these, these ways that um, sons and daughters and other people could affordably get onto a farm
1: and how was your mum and dad's farm doing at that stage? Oh um, Right, yeah, milk
0: prices were reasonably good. I mean, they'd had a couple of tough years through the 80s drought and um, and then um, a few other things that had a couple of years, tough years, but they got through them. Milk prices were pretty good. There was obviously, well, by this stage, there was only one or two children left at home Anthony and, and Jennifer, who were the two last siblings left on the farm
1: having to do all the chores having to do all the chores
0: (laughs) correct and so uh, they were a bit relieved that I was coming back and it was pretty exciting I hadn't been back for a long long time apart from coming back to play a few games of footy and catch up with mates
1: so Um, were they they proud to have their eldest son absolutely
0: you know dad was introducing me to everyone you know when I'd come back you know taking me to all of the United Dairy Farmers Victoria things and um you know it was yeah welcome back with Uh, a lot of excitement and a lot of um, anticipation and it was it was a coming of home for mum I know she was rapt to have someone you know because most of the family had all gone you know all
1: all over Australia sorry so if you couldn't be a professional football player or a priest (laughs) you you could take over the farm (laughs) how long did it take before some cracks appeared in that relationship in terms of the farm I'd say it probably took six
0: months, six to eight months. I enlisted in every course that was run through Victoria being a quite heavily dairy farming area. There were courses offered. Um, There was farm field days. There was many, many opportunities for me to re-educate myself. And uh, so, you know, Dad was fully supporting me in studying, you know, before I'd come to milking. And then I'd have a heap of questions come milking time. And then I'd have a barrage of questions for Dad and Dad would be answering him. But that wore thin um, as I... I suppose I learned probably too much. You know, I was really curious about everything beyond just, you know, how dad
1: farmed it. And what kind of things did you start to disagree about then, Robert, in the way that the farm was run?
0: Dad was quite progressive. He actually did think differently and he was doing some different things on his farm. So he was quite progressively orientated. It was probably just that I was just questioning everything. And probably. And he wouldn't
1: have been used to that.
0: No, not at all. He hadn't had that at all. He had farm managers who you'd just told them what to do and they went and did it. They didn't do it with question and being a, you know, a fairly strict Catholic that wasn't the way, um, you know, you didn't question authority, you you just did what you were told. Um, and obviously uh, in the Navy and uh, studying engineering and just, and multi-skilled and all that sort of thing, I had a critically thinking mind, you know, an aircraft, you can't work on an aircraft without having a pretty alert mind because this is, you know, this has got to not crash or not fall out of the sky, um, otherwise you kill someone. So, it, So I had that sort of a mind and I think my mind just taxed dad. I remember one day he said to me, Oh, for Christ's sake, you know, will you stop asking questions? This is just, you know, it, he just got fed up with me asking just so many it. questions. Just do it. Just do what I yes. want you to do. yeah. Don't question me any further, please.
1: With the courses that you were doing and the thinking and the talking to people, were you starting to have a different kind of vision for how that farm could operate than your dad had?
0: I I was, yeah. One, one um, we did a series of weekend or week, Uh, one or two day courses with a mob called Best Fed Nutrition um, down at the local hall. And um, Dad and I did it together. And uh, I remember having, um, uh, Les Sandals was the name of the guy who did the course. And it was very much out of the US model of just treat a cow like an Olympian and just get as much milk out out of her as you can. And if she lives for only four years or five years, then the ROI will stack up. You know, who cares about the cow's life? And I had lunch with him one day and I said how do you because he also had a great observation of cows he you know good cows did when they wanted in the paddock and I'm thinking wow how did he find this time and he told me this story about how he went for a really horrible divorce and um, he sought solace in the paddock and in the paddock he was just watching cows and then he had all these sort of oh wow I didn't you know these realizations and I went away from that conversation going Oh, that's the missing piece. I've got to look through my farm, through my cow's eyes. And that changed. I took it to the extreme. I didn't go down that pathway that I was being taught about how to use every chemical trick in the book, including sneaking a bit of meat into there. You know, the mad cow thing was happening. I went. The total opposite direction. I went, wow, you know, I tasted everything the cows would eat. I just investigated everything. And how did the shape. farm
1: look to you when you saw it through a cow's oh, eye? Oh,
0: completely differently. Like I, the farm looked completely different. Um, I also did a permaculture design course. I did, I just went into, I did a, um, a year of, I broke oh, my wrist, my left wrist in a windmill And I had a couple of weeks off, so I went and did this Land Care for Educators course and I met an Indigenous person who who took me to the top of a hill and he just described to me the landscape in a way that no one had ever described to me it before and also gave me a bit of idea of some inkling into the wisdom that I may be missing maybe mm. absolutely was mm. missing this was in a, a period of maybe a year I did all of these courses and my and I met other farmers who were farming organically or biodynamically or you know weren't using chemicals I met this other group of farmers who were ostracized from the main farming group they weren't the sort of farmers you'd bump into the pub and they'd start telling you straight away oh, yeah, you know this sort of thing and um, it really piqued my interest.
1: And you started what seeing what a cow would Mean for a cow's quality of life, rather than just that Olympian producer. Yes, yes.
0: I just had this extreme empathy of the farm. So I designed the farm tracks differently. I designed the paddocks and where the gates were. I, I've just felt if a cow is less stressed, we're going to get more years out of them. I felt that that was going to make my life as a farmer easier, and certainly the cow's life easier. Um, you know, even exploring how do I move away from this rearing a calf for two or three days and then taking the mother off them and then selling the the bobby calf, you know, the the, the bull calf. I thought about how can I make that less stressful I really went down a different pathway.
1: <laughs> how were things going between you and Trish no. on the farm together? Oh, Trish,
0: Trish after about a year um, of the crack starting to appear between my dad and I Trish was suddenly a bit fed up with it she um, you know bravely spoke up in my defence at a couple of dinners where dad was uh, quite sick of me being around and, and, um, and uh, started to treat me rather differently from uh from when I first arrived and um Trish could just see the writing on the wall this wasn't going into a good place. Meanwhile her, her her father's mother and father's farm up now in central Queensland was also going through drought and she went up there and they were they were going through a hell of a time and having to sell the farm and family issues. So Trish just could see that this wasn't going it wasn't going to a good place and she could see in me that I was becoming starting to become like my father. Oh, I was or obviously, you know, the DNA's there. And um, what you mean,
1: an, an antagonistic or angry? Uh, just, or you know, I had,
0: um, you know, I was a workaholic. I was, I was committed to the, you know, there was. I had a lot of blind spots that so Trish was starting to go. Oh my God, you know, there's him, and do I want to be around that later on? And um, uh, she decided that um, she was going to go back and help her family move, and um, you know, paint the house and do all that sort of stuff. And um, she come back after that and said, no. I'm, I'm not coming, or well, she come back just to say I'm not going to come. This is this is it.
1: How uh, bad did things get between you and your dad?
0: Ron? Oh, pretty bad. You know, they were. Um, he he knew which buttons to push, and uh, yeah, you know, and and I was fed up. I was fed up with this this constant um, denigration of of my ideas, and um, yeah, one day he pushed me over the edge, and uh, for the first time, and I'm you know never never. Never fought anyone with my fist ever in my life, um, and uh, I, yeah, went at dad, and dad fought back. He's pretty, pretty tough bloke. He he went at me as a, you know, toe to toe, and um, it was a horrible, horrible thing. Was your mum there? Uh, yeah, mum saw it. Yeah, well, she was a you know bit down the paddock oh, you know, out of the kitchen window, and mm. she was pretty, pretty upset. So, um, and um. I walked away um, for the first time, and this is, it might seem a bit, a, a bit weird, but I walked away for the first time actually feeling like I'd actually stood up to him because most times when we'd argued, I'd walk away feeling angry, frustrated, all you know, just the things I didn't say, The un, and, but this time I actually, um, I've come out of it feeling better for having stood up to him. And, uh, um, but obviously later on that day, um, when mum, you know, stated her case and said, you know, this is, this is not, this is not good.
1: So what happened? How did well, you Tim, resolve this? Well, Tim, my brother
0: Tim, who was training to be a psychologist, he, he um, tried to be a mediator um, and to, did a, you know, sat us down and said, well, how can we resolve this? And. A psychologist took us through a
1: process. Psychologists always have a lot to work with in their own families, don't they? (laughs) Especially big families like that. We've got a whole range. And Tim had
0: already been through his wars with mum and dad earlier on in his life.
1: And what decision did you come to about the farm itself? No,
0: so that didn't resolve really anything at all. And it wasn't until, um, um, you know, dad just came to me one day and just said, listen, you know, if you want the farm, you're going to have to buy it off us. I'm too old. I don't want to deal with all this. And I said, fair enough. Yeah, that's. Absolutely right, Dad. You shouldn't be asked to do all of these crazy things that I felt pretty passionate about and pretty excited about.
1: So is that what happened? You bought the family well, farm? Well,
0: I arrogantly bought the farm, yes. I, uh, being you know the stubborn oldest son said, Right oh, and uh um went and saw a consultant, he put together a plan and a price. We took it to Mum and Dad. Dad threw it out and said, "Absolutely no way. That price is not agreeable to me." And um, he charged me top dollar. And I foolishly said, "I don't," uh, you know, just to prove him wrong, and prove that I could farm and the way I was farming or well, the way I wanted to farm was going to end up better. I I bought it for that price. Um, Did that all feel great? Oh, it felt Rob? wonderful. Like I remember when I signed the the, the contract with the bank. Um, you know, coming out that day out of the bank, going, you know, like just so free podcast broadcast and online you're listening to conversations with Sarah Konoski hear more conversations anytime
1: on the ABC listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations Rob, once you'd become the boss, how did you start doing things differently? Well, because I
0: took on a pretty big debt, um, debt debt-to-equity ratio was really high. Um, So I was Behind the eight ball, um, milk prices were pretty good in April when I bought the farm. But by July, when the opening prices were announced, they were 20% down on the expected, on everything that we forecast on. So I was already facing an uphill battle. But because I had that high debt-to-equity ratio already, I was running it really lean anyway. Um And reducing chemicals is a big part of your cost, reducing the, all of the cultivation that Dad used to harrow and plough and just do all these things that might be fine over in Europe. But in, a, in the Australian context, I felt we could do things a little bit more efficiently and and with less fossil fuels and less driving a tractor night and day. So that helped me through the first year, those reduced expenses to get through. Did um, you
1: have other, did you have farm hands or other people helping on the farm? Yeah, I had um,
0: yeah three people who worked with me on the farm and I was coaching footy at the same time too as well so I was pretty pretty busy and you know there was a network of farms so we'd formed the Australian Dairy Farm Managers Association down in western victoria and so there was a support group 15 to 20 dairy farmers who who were farming differently and you know using various uh, ways and the vet the local vet he was quite keen on a different way of addressing health concerns within within the cows
1: so it when was- did that hopeful story Start to change?
0: Um, well, and actually, being a bit ignorant of, of the circumstances, by the second year of my farm ownership, so around about March, late March, early April, you're meant to get a fair bit of rain. And that gets the grass growing to get you through the winter time, and you save up all that grass and then you come out the end of winter time into spring and the grass grows again and you've chewed through all that grass, hopefully. Well, the first year we got no autumn break and the second year no autumn break again and I was looking down the barrel, all these pasture improvement things that I'd put in there were starting to suffer, like not putting urea on, it's the only thing that'll get grass growing. It grows quantity of grass, but not much quality. So uh, by the end of the second year, I was in a bad way financially um, and starting to look down the barrel of an awkward period of time. So I put off all my employees. I had to put them all off and just do it. And I was milking three hundred and ten cows. Yourself. In a tennis side, yeah, in a tennis side. Like it was four hours milking in the morning, three hours at night, plus the the start and the end of milking. Uh, like so, I was w- working, you know, literally eight to nine hours a day just in the dairy, let alone all the other, the chores. And being, you know, um, you know, in my 30s, early 30s, I felt pretty invincible and I could, you know, handle this workload without a problem, um, but not at all cognizant of my mental state of mind. And, uh, and I was doing it by myself. And, uh, you know, some of the listeners will know out there that you just go into this... Um, stubborn frame of mind where where you don't talk about it it's not it's not talked about at all this is you know the mid to late 90s um, dairy deregulation's coming in everyone wanted dairy deregulation but when it hit the ground no it was it was an awful thing you know the supermarkets were definitely in control and, and the prices were coming down and uh, farmers everywhere were facing pretty hard times it wasn't just me there was other farms
1: when did you have to accept that the financials of the farm
0: it was had failed? um thankfully uh there was a um a financial like a counselor financial counselor the dairy the dairy industry paid for and she would come to my farm once a month and go through all my figures and all my numbers and uh, we got relief at the start of the third year when i sold a hundred of my best cows i was into desperate territory now, not knowing that I was in desperate territory. And, um, you know, there's other things in my personal life that also the cracks were opening.
1: And when it finally came to a point that you couldn't afford to keep the farm going, yeah, yeah. Who, who took ownership of it?
0: Well, it went back to my parents. I'd um, I'd pretty much gone, in, well, I went and saw a psychologist and he said, you can't go on. And um, I um, one night I thought, right, well, that's it. Thankfully, I'd never owned a gun. So I never sort of you know, even though, as you know, even though you're always thinking about how can you end your life because this is just too hard, um, I decided to drive down to the neighbours and borrow their gun under the pretence of killing, a, of shooting a cow because we shoot cows quite regularly, and uh, I got halfway down and um, I just didn't have the guts to do it and uh, turned around and come back. Tell and, me about
1: that moment. What made oh, you turn I around? Just,
0: I just thought of, I can't do this to my family, I couldn't do this to my friends, it, and I couldn't do it anyway. I mean, how was I going to do it, you know? It, it just, and I turned around and come back, and then the lights were on in the dairy, and I'd left the lights on the dairy, it was night. And I thought, oh, I'd better go across and turn those lights off. And halfway across the paddock, I lay down on this wet paddock wet grass and, you know, arms spread out, lay down. And thinking, Mike, what am I going to do? How, you know, because I was determined to continue. Failure was, just wasn't an option. And I got up, had a brilliant night's sleep, rang the accountant the next morning, rang my solicitor the next morning and said, that's it, because they were encouraging me to do all sorts of things. And I said, I'm out. And I rang mum and I said, I'm out. Mum was so relieved, I said, that's it, I'm out. Even though I've got nothing and a huge amount of debt, Seven years hasn't been wasted in my mind. I'm still young. And, uh, um, yeah, when, uh, you know, it was when you make these decisions, you, the load comes off you. But the next day, the weight comes back again because then you think, now what?
1: And now what? What did you do next?
0: Well, I struggled, basically, yeah. I, it took me about a month to, to go through all the motions. And I, even though I had no idea what I was going to do, I was pretty enthusiastic about the next Phase.
1: so how did tasmania
0: yeah so Noel uncle noel come and saw me and he said uncle noel again turned up one day and said because i was in this world where i was known by everyone i saw myself as a complete failure and uncle noel said listen rob piss off to tasmania you know i've just come back from there um his wife robin and him just come back he said it's beautiful you'll get your soul back You or some words to that effect. you'll find yourself you know but just get out of here just leave town. And I had no money. I had $90,000 in debt. Absolutely nothing to my name. Horrible. And um, arrived in Tasmania with um, a backpack and a heap of books and a couple of clothes, bits of clothes. And, um, you know, on this new adventure. That's, and um,
1: and so where did you stay? How, how I, did you spend well, your time? Well, the
0: first thing I do, I wanted to pay homage to the farm because I love that farm. I was very um, attached to that. Her dreams and everything, um, you know, I was... Yeah, I had lots of things, and and I wanted to pay homage to that farm. I wanted to say a formal goodbye, so I hitchhike to the top, the northern point of Devonport, this rocky outcrop, where I could spend the night there and you know wave goodbye to the farm. Yeah, so that's where I went to pitch my tent, and and uh, and I'm there about to pitch my tent, and out of the gloom, um, twilight of Tasmania, this Aboriginal fella come out of the out of the gloom and approached me and said, "Hey mate, you can't camp here. This is." This is our, you know, this is our reserve. And I looked at him like, you know, I don't run across many Aboriginal people at all in my life. And I looked at him like he was a ghost, a vision, and then figured out quite quickly he was real. And he sat down the rock next to me. And I said, oh, well, you know, I was taught that there was no, no Aboriginals left on Tasmania, that you'd all been wiped out by the black Line, And he went, oh, my God. You know, like he must have looked at me like I was a bloody vision or... <laughs> so we had this amazing conversation um i told him my story he could see that i was in a bad way and i needed some guidance <laughs> and he um he gave me he he showed me how to walk like an Aboriginal. he showed me he said these are the things you do when you walk across our land to ask permission of the elders and you know he said you'll pick it up pretty quickly you know anyway um he said Camp down there. It's off the reserve, close enough to where you can say goodbye, but just camp down there for the night. And um, the next morning I woke up with this, you know, I was, I, was, I was having a really big sook about being the fourth generation to lose the farm. And, and obviously relative, it was a traumatic experience for me. But I woke up with this experience that my trauma was nothing compared to their trauma. And it gave me just an incredible insight and, and just gave me perspective that I really needed at that point in time. Um, that, is, that is still with me to, the, to this day that we're in, you know, he had the patience to listen to me and to give me advice. Yet, you know, we've done awful things to them and uh, we, we, you know, we have work to, get to, to do together and that perspective just gave me that boost that I desperately needed.
1: And then how did you spend the next few months in Tasmania?
0: Yeah, I, I basically walked in the bush. I just bought a heap of soup packets and two minute noodles and um, grew some sprouts on the back of the backpack. You can grow. What do
1: you mean you grew them on the back of your backpack? You just
0: put, um, you get a, you know, just a little plastic container, put a little bit of, uh, whether it's wet tissue, all the seeds and they grow. I, and, a, and a packet of spirulina. I bought a packet of spirulina because someone said to me, "If you run out of food, just eat these little um, tablets of spirulina, and they'll give you the greens that you need." Um, so for the next yeah six months, I just wandered like months. a lost soul. I, I was trying to, you know, I was I was reading, I'm just walking in the Tasmanian wilderness. I went did the like hitchhiking everywhere wherever there was any wasn't any people. I would be. I just wanted to be totally away from everyone where i could you know hopefully sort it out and people took pity on me you know on bushwalks they'd see me you know two minute noodles and would say oh do you want something you know with a bit of substance and they would share meals and you know i grew a big long beard and hair you know i was pretty unkempt i probably smell um you know i was uh, it was spring coming into summertime thank thank goodness so uh, it was uh, it was it was just one foot after the other, really was one it, foot
1: was it a healing it time? was
0: de- definitely a healing time, like I would s- um, sit in the one spot and watch a spider for four or five hours, weave her web, you know uh, and just be in that space of this is just amazing what this spider is doing, and all of those things that happened you know not all the time but but on occasion um gave me another boost ah yes look at the effort you know this little creature to catch a meal does this yeah
1: so what brought you back into the human world after (laughs) those months (laughs)
0: football it was well i mean i i bumped into a german backpacker who was also going through a bit of a torrid time and we were sleeping out in the open. we weren't even in our tents like a thunderstorm would come down and we'd be just out in the thunderstorm, just get soaked and get up in the morning and just walk. He told me about a community supported agriculture farm down near Hobart um, that you should go and see. I'd heard about it when I was dairying, but I hadn't seen one in the flesh. So I hitchhiked down and and found this farm and then I tented camp there. He said, come and help me. You know, I need someone who can drive a tractor and do a few things, a market garden. And that was where I got You know, I met city people who really wanted to be connected to their food and wanted to be on that farm and they, you know, were there on Fridays for Harvest Day and there was this, this community around the farmer and that was where I went, my Lord, if all farmers can have this experience, like it literally gave, you know, the hairs on my neck stood up just with, wow, if every farmer could have this experience, have this connection to not only who ate their food but feel appreciated, Wow, wouldn't that make a, a difference? Because you know, a lot of people did commit suicide, and there was a lot of angst in the farming community. It wasn't it wasn't just me; it was it it was a lot of people. so that got me out. If I was going to do anything that worked with farmers, I had to work from the mainstream world out. And and I was looking at my life back when I was you know having those disagreements with Dad. I was trying to do things at the extreme, and I needed to have an approach that balanced both the mainstream world and where we could take people on a journey too and um, and I felt like well I need to re-enter mainstream and I thought football season is about to start. I'll go down to the local sports store and uh, you know find out where the local footy club is and um, the sports store people said to me no we've got no clue mate but the butcher next door <laughs> he'll know. So I walked into the butcher and I said uh, hi mate you know where's the local footy club and he said what's your name and I told him Robert Peakin and he said Oh, okay. Yeah, mate, um, tomorrow night down at um, Snug Oval, uh, Channel's the name of the footy club. I'll see you there. And, uh, you know, it it was just, I was barefoot. I had a beard down to here, long hair, skinny as a rake. Obviously, so um, yeah, I got back into footy and and did that bring
1: and... the kind of connection with the mainstream that you hoped? That absolutely, ha- it did. Oh, absolutely.
0: It would, yeah, yeah. I mean, the coach of the reserve grade, he offered me a job on a seafood farm and um, set me up in a house. Like I hadn't lived in a house for seven, eight, you know, six or seven months. I'd been in a tent that whole time. Um, yeah, so they set me up on the on the seafood farm in this little, you know, three by four meter hut bought a bed and put a hot water system in and I lived there for the next year um, while I worked for the seafood farm and that reintegrated me into mainstream society through, through fishermen. You know, I was dealing with fishermen all the time who were my kin as a dairy farmer. You know, they just go out in the ocean and, and harvest their crop. And I got another perspective which, you know, which was so important for me to see that all farmers were always you know, constantly being the ones who are not setting the price and being um, at the subject of all of the risks. of You know, Kenny giving me that job, and his father-in-law, Garth, giving me that job, it really brought me, you know, it was a gift. All I could think, talk, breathe and do was community-supported agriculture. I, I had this bug. Um, I set up a farm just up the road from the footy club, just up the road from the other farm. I leased um, John, you know, he had a peculiar type of dam. And... Uh, when I went past this dam, I'd be looking and going, I think that's a key line dam, which is a very, very rare form of dam. dam. And only smart farmers have key line dams. So I went and knocked on his door and I thought he'd be probably up for this and um, told him that I wanted to lease that paddock over there and set up a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. And what is that? Is that some sort of communist thing, is it? You know? And I said, no, 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 it's a, just an alternative way of farmers sharing, the, you know, growing fruit and vegetables but having a risk-sharing relationship with the people who ate it and anyway he said you can have it for six months rent free you don't have to pay any electricity you can use as much water as you like but you have to work for me one day a week so i worked welding and and doing various things for for john um for the next um, six months and then the farm got established and then i brought uh, bob and joy on her um to help me like um you know i started just selling salad mix on the side of the road
1: so, your focus wasn't so much that you needed to get or were desperate to get back into dairy farming, it was changing the kind of economic model around farming. How did that That's step right. happen?
0: Yeah, I, um, an old dairy farmer mate of mine in Victoria, in Colac, said to me, Can you help me set that up? Because he'd had four boys who were all growing up and he wanted them to have an economic opportunity on their farm. And he felt his dairy farm could diversify into this. And absolutely, you know, dairy farms have got really fertile soil, generally around the cow yard. Um, let's just fence that off from the cows and, and grow grow veggies. So I went and helped him set that up. And then another farmer said, can you help me do that here? And then I went to Ballarat and helped another farmer set it up. And I was just sort of just, and I was talking about it, like giving public talks. I was still, you know, just living in people's back, you know, in their sheds, tending around.
1: So your work with farmers eventually brought you north up to, to Brisbane, where you met your second wife, Emma Kate, and raised a family together. Tell me about this organisation that you set up in Brisbane, Food Connect. How does it work?
0: So it was a bit of a fluke in a way because after that farming experience, I was behind the scenes just helping people set up CSAs and I never wanted to be out front again. And uh, so I was working with seven farmers in the Lockyer Valley around the concept of the, of the CSA as a group of farmers together. So it's yep. a risk sharing relationship where people buy and advance the food or commit to buying the food off all of these farmers or a farmer and they'll do so you know like it takes a village to raise a child you know the parents aren't meant to do everything same with a farmer the farmer wants to grow great quality food but not necessarily do all the marketing do all the accounting do all of the all the other stuff associated with a business and so the the model community supported agriculture community supported anything really is um bringing Experts in who surround that business person with the other bits, and committing to, you know, a year, two years, three years to supporting that farmer, um, so he can just he or she can just grow, or rare, or do whatever it is they're really good at.
1: Is it also about breaking that relationship with the supermarkets, which are oh, absolutely, yeah, going direct, so powerful, yeah, here having in a direct Australia. connection,
0: absolutely, having a direct connection, basically. It's taking a systems view of agriculture and food and putting it together through a social and and an economic and environmental lens and saying, "What we can do this better, but we need to do it within community. So that's the basic concept.
1: So how does it work? If I wanted to buy food from Food Connect, what happens?
0: You, um, it's all done online. Um, you order a, a box, a seasonal box. Um, boxes are everywhere now, nowadays. Yeah, but you basically just order a box. Do and I choose what's in it? You don't. Um, some CSAs are pretty strict. Um, they don't, you know, hardcore, which is what we started out as very hardcore. You don't get to choose. Um, so one of the <laughs> seven principles of CSA is, you know, you get what you get and you don't get upset. <laughs> And in the early days when people would ring up and say, oh, but I'd like this. And we'll, you know, I don't want any more sweet
1: potatoes. Yeah. I, want a, I want a mango. And why is that? Because that's what the farmer's got. That's what the farmer's That's growing. what
0: the farmer's growing. And because a farmer forced to use chemicals on their farm is to grow things out of season or or to use clever tricks to get things to fruit at certain times. Whereas if you just go with the seasons, you're going to get affordable food, really great food, free of all those toxins, and get to experience the seasons. So it's turning food from something that is where everyone expects to get everything all year round into the surprise of eating with the seasons because it's really good for your health, but it's also fantastic for the health of the land.
1: And then what kind of connections do the people buying those boxes have with the farmers? What's yeah, different?
0: Basically the relationship because then then you get this healthy tension between accountability and responsibility. Okay, well, if they're buying... So we were pre-selling boxes four weeks in advance, so people had to buy the boxes four weeks, which has never been done. The farmers were going, really? City, people are buying food four weeks in advance off us? So that puts on them all this responsibility to grow really good produce. So it's a win-win. You know, the mental health of farmers, so many farmers go through rough patches, We'll, we'll do a farm tour out there, they get so much out of that relationship, you know, and then, then all the other economic models like we've had farmers or city people have gone and invested in farms or built Airbnbs on those farms as an extra income profit share. So there's just been things beyond my wildest dreams in terms of the outcomes that have benefited both city folk and farmers.
1: What do your mum and dad make of this model of farming that you've helped grow here?
0: Mum and dad are, um, you know... I was reflecting on reflecting on this the other day that they'd sort of say well done and whatever else, but they certainly don't they're certainly not forward in saying, you know, this is so exciting and well done and all that sort of stuff.
1: But for you when right back when you got that idea of returning to the family farm and drew at night that map mm. of what the farm would look like, how close are you to what's happening now to that?
0: I'm beyond to that, that vision. now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, that vision has come through in multiple ways. You know, we have, well, at the shed, the Food Connect shed, you know, we've got 530 people who raised $2.5 million to buy our warehouse, you know, a year or a year and a half ago. I'm doing a lot more things than I previously thought when I drew up that plan. And
1: um, what about that farm that you grew up on? What's happened to that land It now? got
0: split up in two. Um, the last time I was there... I I haven't been there for a while and um, it was pretty denuded you know there's just no land key management whatsoever so it's, it's a bit sad for me um, the trees are still growing I put a lot of plantations of trees in there they're still going thankfully no one's knocked them down or cut them up for timber or firewood or something like
1: that. The landscapes that we grew up in when we were little kids they're such those early smells and the colours and the sounds of them and it's so different that West Victorian farming landscape from where you are now. Does that seep into your dreams or your daydreams? Yeah,
0: yeah. I still have a huge affinity to that landscape and that climate. That climate in particular, that temperate, cool, temperate climate, you know, with not much rain, volcanic soils. I. That's where I was born and that's where I have a strong connection to, you know, that volcanic landscape. You know, there's a spirit in that land that I feel quite connected to and still very strongly connected to. I'm in Queensland now and I do a lot of work in Queensland, but I still can't get my head around the tropical subtropical grasses you know i knew every every grass and every seed and every i knew everything i had a an affinity with everything that grew there whereas up here i don't have that you know Kaiku. i yeah so um it's still very much a part of me yeah
1: rob Mm. i really have got a lot out of hearing your story thank (laughs) you so much for sharing it
0: thanks sarah lovely to be on
1: Robert Pekin is the founder of Food Connect. I spoke with him last year, and since then, the social enterprise has grown to host 32 local growers, as well as a stone flour mill made from Australian granite. If this conversation with Robert raised concerns for you, then as always, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. On days like these, we want to tell you the best story you've heard all week. Each episode of the podcast, we speak to one person about the biggest day of their life, The moment when everything changed. And there's always something you didn't see coming. Days Like These has funny stories. And he looks beautiful. He's fat and juicy and looking lovingly at the photographers. Scary stories. I came to when I was being dragged to a police car.
0: And everything in between. I just felt so wrong to leave her there.
1: And that's when I freaked out. I can't stay in this place. This is terrifying. And he said, oh my God. (laughs) Yes. And in our latest season, we bring you tales of a mysterious Brumby, a brush with the Polish secret police, one woman's dream to earn her trucking licence and the power of an illicit love song. Join us on days like these. New episodes drop each Wednesday morning or catch up anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.